0: Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney Maxwell Goss.
1: On this episode, I interview celebrity divorce lawyer Chris Melcher. Chris represents celebrities and high net worth individuals in divorce and other family law matters. Chris is also a regular commentator on legal cases involving famous people. He has been quoted and featured in media outlets, including ABC News, CNN, Fox News, USA Today, and Entertainment Tonight. In this interview, Chris gives his take on the Johnny Depp-Amber Heard trial and the ongoing custody battles between Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. Along the way, Chris provides useful insights for all lawyers on how to handle cases involving explosive, potentially damaging personal allegations. I really enjoyed this interview, and I think you will, too. Chris Melcher, welcome to the Litigation War Room.
2: Well, thanks for having me, Max. I'm super excited to uh, talk about this topic with you.
1: I'm excited, too. Chris, I'd like to hear a bit about your practice. You've got a very interesting niche that I think will be of interest to our listeners. And after you tell us about that, then we'll dig down into a couple of cases that I know are very much of public interest and I think will pique the interest of our, our listeners. But to begin, will you go ahead and just maybe tell us just a little bit about you and about your firm and about your law practice?
2: Sure. I'm a divorce lawyer based in Los Angeles. I'm handling cases throughout California. And the niche that we have is representing folks that uh, are going through high stakes divorce involving very large estates. So these are usually business owners, celebrities, trust fund beneficiaries, executives of publicly traded companies that are going through a divorce. It's an interesting practice because when someone, unfortunately, has to divorce or break up, all aspects of their life a lot of times are intertwined in that case. So it's very personal. And it's not only just dealing with division of their their home, it's their business, it's their future income, retirement, it's time with their kids. And when they can't resolve things quickly, it winds up in a public courtroom. So this is... Very, very challenging litigation. It makes it interesting because we're able to deal with so many aspects of law and valuing different types of assets. We never get bored. But what I found is, is that these are mostly psychologically or emotionally driven disputes. And that's kind of where I'm focusing on the source of this problem and trying to address that rather than just the legal aspects of it.
1: Now, Chris, you've been described as a celebrity lawyer, and you've appeared on you know, television a number of times, and people Google your name, they'll, they'll find out that, that you're a regular commentator in print and, and on television. You represent a lot of very interesting clients, a lot of high-asset clients, as you mentioned, not only celebrities, but, but others with, as you say, very large estates. just have to ask, how do you get into an area like that? That's, that's quite a niche.
2: You know I fell into it. I, I when I got out of law school in ninety three and ninety four era, um the economy was in a terrible state in Los Angeles. There was no hiring. And so i I had these ideas of being a corporate securities attorney, and I wanted to work for the SEC, figure out, All of this stuff about corporate securities, and then go into private practice and represent companies in initial public offerings and take a piece of of the offering for the services. And I, I, I saw that with a gentleman, Richard Reardon, who had a firm, Reardon McKenzie, in Los Angeles and became quite wealthy doing that, and then eventually was mayor of Los Angeles. So I was trying to follow in his footsteps, but when I got out, no one was hiring, not even the public defender. So I went in private practice, kind of a come in the door type practice. And, you know, I got exposed to so many different areas of law doing that and settled in really in, in criminal defense and was specializing in or t- working towards my specialty in criminal defense. And there was a guy down the hall from me who was a solo divorce practitioner who who had this niche that he learned from his dad about kind of representing in these big Divorce cases, and he was looking for somebody who could do trial work for him, and so he convinced me to switch over, which I had no idea that I would ever be a divorce lawyer. And you know, so once I started learning about the practice, I thought, "Wow, this is this is really interesting." So me, him, and a secretary built a firm. We're now at I don't know nine lawyers, eight or nine lawyers somewhere in there, and it's been a great ride. So I've been a been a lawyer for twenty eight years, twenty as a divorce lawyer.
1: Okay. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's really um, interesting. For this episode, I wanted to get your insight on some things. I do want our listeners to be exposed to just some of your fascinating insights. You and I had a great conversation a week or two ago as we got ready for this podcast. And um, I know that you're a regular public commentator on cases of public interest. So I wanted to dig into a couple of cases that I've been all over the media and get your insights on those. So let's start with the very recent case, um, the Johnny Depp v. Amber Heard case. Can you tell us a bit, I mean, I think just to set the stage, I think everybody's heard of it. Everybody's caught glimpses of it, um, at least on television or in the newspapers or on the internet. Some people probably watched every twist and turn, but if you could sort of level set and just let us know what's the case all about.
2: Sure. Well, there's, Three cases, and I'm not involved as counsel uh, for, you know, in the case. I was a legal commentator following that case from the beginning when they separated, and it started as a divorce and domestic violence restraining order application by Amber against Johnny uh, back in 2016. So I followed that case in extraordinary detail. It's been very interesting. And so they were married briefly, and then when they broke up, Amber had filed a request for domestic violence restraining order against Johnny, giving him 24 hours notice to his counsel when he was overseas for the uh, premiere of a movie. And uh, his mom had just died, and Amber said that she was afraid based on some conduct that she alleged he had engaged in and went into LA Superior Court with this restraining order application. And these are handled in, in a very abbreviated way because there's there's supposed to be emergencies and we wanna protect people. So she asked for protection. She was given this order against Johnny. And then she walks out the front door of this courthouse in Los Angeles with a bruise on her face. And the media was there in force. And there's questions, you know, about why the media was even there. You know, it's been alleged by somebody who formerly worked for TMZ, Morgan Tremaine, that, that Amber had tipped off TMZ. And, um, and she definitely went out of the most public exit of that courthouse. The bruise that she had on the side of her face, or apparent bruise, was contradicted by a photograph of her the following day, Where she was photographed with a high resolution lens, you know, by a paparazzi, no bruise. And so there's an allegation that she had applied makeup to her face to show that bruise. And, you know, but Johnny settled quickly, or the two of them settled quickly after this. Uh, I think it was the right thing for both of them to do. It was a $7 million settlement to her, and that should have been the end of it. And there was a non-disparagement provision in their settlement agreement, but it wasn't the end of it. He paid her the money. She went on television saying that she had no interest in his money, that she had donated the $7 million to charity. So she was kind of making these statements in the press. Eventually, she does an op-ed piece that The Washington Post had published where she said that she was had spoken out, and this is the beginning of the Me Too movement, that she had spoken out against a powerful man that she was in a relationship with and um, bore the price or paid the price when all of these powerful people associated with him had, had retaliated. And it was clear from the statement, even though she didn't name Johnny, that she was referencing him. And there was also a statement that was made about Johnny in the UK, by The Sun, calling him a wife-beater, where they were picking up these allegations that she made against him in the domestic violence restraining order application. So, Johnny had first sued The Sun in England and for defamation. Their laws are, are the opposite of ours. Uh, the publisher has to justify the statement. So, he had figured that he would win out there, and Amber was not a party. It was him versus the publisher. and. Amber testified, and he lost that case in England. The judge found that there was sufficient information on which this publisher could rely upon to make the statement because Amber had made it. Then thereafter, he sued her for this op-ed piece in Virginia, and he won there in that case. She had countersued him for some statements that— Uh, His attorney at the time, Adam Waldman, had made in the press about Amber and the jury found that some of those statements were also false and uh, gave a small, uh, relatively smaller award against Johnny for those statements. So those are the three cases that took many, many years to resolve.
1: So it really did have its genesis in something that really is in your bailiwick. It really was a family law type dispute, but then there's all these things that followed. And let me just pause here and ask... Was it crazy for Johnny Depp to sue her for defamation in the United
2: States after he had lost in the UK? Well, yeah. When I was watching this, I thought, you know, like I say, it was, it was the right thing to settle the divorce quickly. Then to sue in the UK, it's like, okay, I mean, look, he's opening up. You know, anytime you sue, you, you open yourself up. So he opens himself up in the UK, but you know, hey, they don't have First Amendment there. So, uh, you know, the publisher has to prove that he's a wife beater. So, okay, I can get my head behind that. But then he loses, which is like, wow. So we put himself out there. No, I'm not a wife beater. And then here you got this (laughs) English judge after a trial saying, well, you know, hey, kind of looks like maybe you are. And so I thought, wow, that really was disastrous because— how many people were really thinking about these allegations before he went and sued in England, and now he's put them on full display and he's lost? Wow, that really didn't work out well for him. And then when he sued in, in Virginia, I thought, this is a mistake. Uh, that was my my view that I stated at the time, that it was just like, man, you got to leave this alone. You're opening it up. You have to now prove that Amber's statements about you are false and that they're done with what we call actual malice because he's a public figure. How are you possibly going to win this? Aren't you just opening up more? And when the case started, I mean, there were really bad allegations that came out. And I know we want to talk about that, that it was like, man, you're just bringing this on yourself. But something turned in the case. And it flipped, and he was able to recover from it. And I think that's where the lessons come here for us in litigation. But it was a high-stakes gamble that he made by basically filleting himself in public.
1: Yeah, it's kind of amazing and really remarkable and remarkable in retrospect that he won. Um, and I take it also had something to do with this. His prospects in Hollywood, Um, my understanding, my very limited understanding, is that there's some concern. Is he going to be in the next Pirates of the Caribbean? Is there going to be another Pirates of the Caribbean, for example? And so maybe that's why it was, in addition to the personal reputational matters, maybe it was a matter of protecting his livelihood.
2: Well, I think so. And it's also just his reputation, his legacy. And it's very difficult to overcome allegations. And unfortunately, what's happened is, is in our society, is that we're quick to judge. People read headlines, they don't read the story. So it's easy to make an allegation against somebody and it will stick. And it's very difficult to overcome it and a lot of the classic advice has been hey don't address it just it'll die down it leave it alone because the more you address it the more oxygen you give to that story you know, but the problem is is that if you're in Hollywood or any any high profile business or really anything at this point, I mean if you're accused of domestic violence, you become toxic. It's like you no know, people don't want to work with you and it's not safe for them to work with you because they don't want to be criticized. So there was a matter of survival probably to his decision.
1: Right in the days of sweeping those things under the rug probably long past as, as well. So maybe there was something about the moment, the Me Too moment. On the one hand, uh, maybe it looked worse for him, but on the other hand, maybe it made it all the more important for him to fight.
2: Well, yeah, th- that's the thing is, is that it, because things were sweeped under the rug and ignored and and we we covered for favored people is what made Me Too necessary. Unfortunately, it can go too far and that the rights of the accused have sometimes been forgotten. And and that's what makes our society great is that, you know, we're going to hold people accountable, but also we have to give people an opportunity to defend themselves. And they can't do that in a tweet or immediately. There's considerations here where maybe they can't just immediately say, hey, here's my story. So... Unfortunately, our appetite for this information is insatiable, and, it's, and we want immediate responses where it just doesn't really work that way, and some have paid the price. And, you know, he's an example about don't judge too quickly. Don't look at the TMZ, you know, story of somebody walking out of a courtroom with a bruise on her face and, you know, assume that he beat her because he went through this trial and
1: proved no, he didn't. Now, tell us, as we all know now, there was a pretty dramatic reversal in this case. You said you were skeptical yourself at the outset, and I think it's fair to say that there's a pretty common public perception that, gee, these allegations from Amber Heard are pretty serious and um, doesn't look so good for Johnny. What happened? So what happened
2: is that Amber testified on television, and that's what's different than the UK case versus the US case. In the UK case that Johnny lost, Amber testified, but it was done privately. They don't have televisions in the courtroom there. They don't have a jury there for these type of matters automatically. And she, as, as a non-party, she was not subject to what we call discovery, what they call disclosure. So if her deposition wasn't taken. A record- oh, because he was suing The Sun, the newspaper. Exactly. Right, okay. And and in England, which is different than the U.S. system, you you can get what they call disclosure from the person you're suing or the entity you're suing, but not from third parties. Unlike in the U.S., like we're suing, a you know, a company. Well, we can start issuing subpoenas to whoever we want, honestly, and get a lot of information from them. The U.K. is different. So she was protected against disclosure. She didn't have to reveal this. And when she's told her story, it was— in a courtroom that was not publicized in a way that the Virginia you know, court one was. So she was not subject to scrutiny. Fast forward to the Virginia trial, she then takes the stand after having been subject to discovery, witnesses having been forced to reveal information, including the two charities that she claimed she gave all this money away to, the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles and ACLU, who had to testify, no, we didn't get all that money from her. And so, she was caught in a lie there. And she was caught in a lot of other lies. And her demeanor on the stand is what did it, at least for me and I think for a lot of people. It's one thing to say, you know, all these allegations, but then when you're watching the person testify, you're judging their credibility. It's one thing that we, I think, all have experience in dealing with people and saying, you know, do we, like and believe this person. And there's subtle cues that tell us, you know, yes or no. And the cues that she was giving off were highly incredible, inconsistent testimony. Her expressions didn't match the words that she was saying. And I'm trying to give her credit saying, well, look, if she is a victim of domestic violence or survivor of domestic violence, then she would have potentially a lot of trauma from that. So maybe she wouldn't express herself in a way that I would expect, or maybe she's just different than the way that I would expect. But looking at her on the stand for several days, even on direct examination, softball questions by her own counsel, not talking about cross, it was a horrible performance. And it was unbelievable. And it was at that point that was the turning point for me in that trial was saying, I just don't believe her, even before she was cross-examined.
1: And it's interesting what you say there's a real connection between likability and credibility. I don't know if that's good or bad or somewhere in between, but it seems to be a fact. And um, you and I were, were talking and something that struck me is maybe it's not because I'm, I'm not a particular fan of Johnny Depp, but I never thought of him as a particularly likable fellow. But by the end of this case, he certainly seemed more likable than his opponent. Can you just say a few words about likability and how that factors in, particularly in a, in a setting where you have a jury?
2: Well, that's right. I mean, I I was a fan of his work. I didn't know anything about him personally. And when he started testifying, because he was the plaintiff, so he started out before Amber took the stand. And it it was torturous, his testimony. He speaks slowly. He takes a lot of time kind of thinking about his words. And uh, when I was watching it, a lot of times it was sped up on YouTube so I could get through this. And um, And then the information that he was revealing about he was abused by his parents, particularly his mom as a child, and... The, the only way he coped with that was through drug and alcohol use. And, and I was like, wow, okay. I mean, I actually feel really sorry for him um, based on what he went through. But it's like, wow, I really sh- no, we shouldn't be hearing this. This is such personal information. But he took all that and basically turned what are some negative facts and explained it in a way that made him likable. To saying, look, you're seeing me here with a lot of drug and alcohol problems. I'm not a party guy. I don't do that to party, to have fun. I do it to basically self-medicate." And it was like, wow, okay, I feel really badly for him. And through his experience of being abused by his mom, he said he retreated. When his mom would, would abuse him, he would retreat. He wouldn't fight back. We all have different ways of coping with this stuff. And then he ended up finding himself in a relationship, he said, with Amber Heard, who was aggressive, and we see this from, from audio tapes of her at the time, highly aggressive towards Johnny and what did he do? He retreated, he ran into a bathroom, locked himself in there and she's trying to get in there to attack him further. So it humanized him. It, it explained all this drug and alcohol abuse that we saw him engaging in from the eighties as a coping mechanism for some very difficult childhood that he had. And so he turned bad facts into something positive And then Amber, you know, also had the opportunity to do the same things to saying, like, hey, you know, whatever motivated her to be so angry and abusive towards him on the audio tapes that were played at that trial, she could have explained it, but she didn't. She took no responsibility. It was always Johnny's fault. She took no fault of her own. And that's what I think doomed her. And it's like all of these cases that we have, we have good and bad facts. And it's like it's an opportunity to take a bad fact and turn it into a positive. You know, you make got lemons, you make lemonade. You can't just say, here, eat the lemon raw. No, we're not going to like that. But that's the approach she took. Yeah, boy, so many lessons there for
1: trial lawyers, Uh, not only those who represent celebrities, but really all of us. You know, not just about likability, just whether you have a likable personality, but about telling a, a compelling, coherent, plausible story. And even when you're talking about sort of the big picture of your upbringing and your background and your struggles, it was very critical for for Johnny Depp that it hung together with his with what he was alleging or what his defense was. I guess what he was alleging. Whereas hers, there's a disconnect. Is that a fair characterization?
2: That that's right. And I think it's it's hard when. You know, because we are storytellers as lawyers, and, you know, a lot of times we want to focus on the facts of the incident and just dive right into it and get, you know, granular about whatever, it's an accident or it's this divorce thing that we're, asset that we're valuing, and we just want to focus in on it because we know we have to prove that, but then we forget, you know, we're talking about people here and we're also trying to sell our story or persuade a judge or a jury, we're also obviously people. And so I think taking the time to humanize, and it's its a hard word, I think, for some people to understand, because it's like, we're human, why do we need to be humanized? Well, it's like, I think in a case, a lot of times, you know, we're looking at ourselves as a plaintiff or defendant, petitioner, or respondent, and it's like, hey, we're people, those are just labels. And you know what makes us special because there's something about each one of us that that makes us unique and relatable. And I think that we got to take the time to bring that information out there. And especially, like I say, with the Johnny situation, it it's like his story explained a lot about him. It kind of then turned what could have been because I thought like, wow, this guy's just a raging alcoholic and drug addict, and I really don't. Like to all of a sudden be like, oh, wow, okay, he's, he's medicating himself for something that happened to him when he was a kid. And look at how he reacted in the face of aggression. He retreats. And now we're going to see evidence of him retreating in the relationship he had with Amber. So they tied it all together. It's really, really well done. Um, so I do think that there's lessons there of kind of slowing down, telling the story, humanizing our client.
1: I think you commented already, but say a little bit, if you could, a little bit more about the resolution of the case and the jury's verdict.
2: So at the end of the day, there's like $10.35 million verdict against Amber Heard for defamation against Johnny Depp, and then a $2 million verdict against Johnny for the statements that his lawyer had made after this domestic violence uh, allegations were raised that were defamatory against her. I don't know that he'll ever see a dime of that, um, but he did go there to clear his name, and I think his name was was largely cleared. There, there were so much viewership on that trial. It was similar to, you know, the OJ trial that I watched, and a lot of us watched back in the day. This was like an OJ trial, and I think the fact that celebrities were involved, that it was televised, that there was kind of this you know, likeable Johnny Depp character and the villain um, Amber Heard there. It was like watching a miniseries. But hey, you know, these are highly personal events for these two individuals, but there were learning lessons for a lot of people about how law works. And that that's what I enjoy as a commentator is to kind of be a translator for what's going on in the court. And And I like it when people are engaged in legal issues. But the main thing, the takeaway for me is that, you know, if if somebody's going to go into court and testify, it's like, uh, obviously got to be honest and you got to be likable and you got to take responsibility. And somebody coming in like Amber did, where it's, hey, I didn't do anything wrong. It's all everybody else's fault. And I'm going to basically lie on the stand. That's a recipe for disaster.
1: So true. And so well said. Really appreciate that. I want to respect your time. We could talk about Johnny and Amber all day, I, I think. But I do want to talk briefly about another case that was in the press quite a bit. And I know you have some interesting observations about, but the saga of uh, Angelina and Brad, the, the divorce of Angelina Jolie and, and Brad Pitt. What was that all about? Can you just kind of set it up, the genesis of that?
2: Sure. And, you know, this is another one that started around the same time, I think it was 2016, and that I followed. And you know, they were married, they had children together, and uh, then there was an incident on on a plane in Los Angeles that uh, Angelina claims that Brad was was physically abusive towards one of their children. And so she files for divorce, and she's making these allegations here that he's not, you know, safe to parent, and that sets off the divorce. They eventually resolve their financial issues uh, except for uh, this co-interest that they had in a winery a chateau business in France. But the custody issues have lingered on to this day. And, you know, this is another surprise because most celebrity couples will resolve things quietly because this is toxic to their brand. But here, a second celebrity couple who, you know, have litigated throughout this entire period. Now, the bad facts against brad were hey he's being accused by angelina jolie of of this conduct and that is it'd be very very damaging to his uh, career or ability to work so you know whatever happened on that plane who knows we weren't there but he did handle it very well. Afterwards, he he said, hey, I'll submit to whatever questioning you want. I'll go to co-parenting classes. I'll have a monitor, basically like a security guard present during my parenting time. You know, I'm going to kind of back off and let Angelina, you know, dictate what the parenting term should be. And it's like, hey, you know, whether you did something right or wrong... You know, that's the way to move forward. It's like, hey, another parent has concerns. Let's address those concerns and move forward. So even if he did something wrong on the plane, I think he comes out looking correctly as the solution-focused, forward-looking parent. Let's address it. Let's move forward.
1: And it really illustrates that it's not just about getting back at Angelina, but he really does want the time with the children. (laughs) Right? And wants to address, you know, whoever is right, whoever is wrong, wants to address and move forward, you know,
2: in whatever way necessary to make that happen. That's right. It looks reasonable. And and here's the thing: is is that when you're defending somebody who's been accused of some act of violence, you know, a lot of times that client wants to fight and it's saying like, "This is false. This didn't happen. I want to defend myself." You go in there, lawyer, and. Fight, and that that's a natural reaction. But then we got to think about this: like, you know, how does that look? Like, you're accused of doing something violent, and now you're going in with a very aggressive posture in court. Kind of looks like you're a violent person. You know, that could be a conclusion. So, I, I mean, it's 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 unfortunate because, like, how else do you defend yourself? But that's a conversation that I have with the clients. It's like, don't fit the mold. Um, certainly, you can put on a strong defense, but you have to be careful here is that if you're coming in too aggressive, you actually look like you're a violent person potentially or you have problems with, with your emotions or you're, you're unaware of your effect on other people, whatever it's going to be. So it's a very difficult thing when you're accused of something, how to respond to it. But he took the, hey, let's back off approach. You got concerns, Angelina, let me address those concerns. So I think point Brad. Now you fast forward all these years later, what are we, you know, six years later, there have been no allegations by Angelina Jolie against Brad Pitt for anything involving the kids since then. Six years. The only incident she has is one time on a plane six years ago. So why are they still fighting over custody? It makes no sense. Whatever happened is in the past. Let's move forward. Let's address it. Uh, Nothing else has happened. So this You know, the theory is, you know, like, well, it's obviously something other than whatever happened on that plane must be driving this dispute. And it's really unfortunate that both of them have been able to resolve this because kids get affected by a divorce, even a friendly or amicable divorce. They get affected. And especially when their parents are fighting for so long, it's really, really harmful to the kids. And then you add on to the fact that they're celebrities— so now everything that happens in that divorce case, like we're even talking about now, you know, is all publicized. And these poor kids can't have any privacy based on this dispute that their parents are unable to handle. So it's, it's really a shame on both of them that they've had that dispute go on for so long.
1: You know, something you said earlier is so perceptive, which is that, look, these celebrities, like anybody else, they're human beings, they're living out of human drama. We, as the people watching them. We identify. We tend to identify. We take sides. Maybe we switch sides, you know, as we watch these things unfold. And it's easy to make light of uh, the interest that, you know, many of us may have in celebrities, and there's sort of a trivial side to it. But it um, seems to me that's part of what explains our interest, is that these people are living out human life <laughs> for everyone to see. And it's of interest because they're like us. They may be celebrities, they may be famous, they may be fabulously wealthy but they're like us and they have the same sorts of problems that either we have or that we're acquainted with.
2: That's absolutely right. And that, that's, that's what, I mean, we're all people and we all have the same problems. And, and in some, some way, some of these celebs are, are ill-equipped to handle the situation because they don't have anyone in their life who's willing to hold them accountable or telling them, it's like, you're out of line here. You got to stop this behavior. No one is going to dare say that to them because they're going to fall out of grace with the celebrity. So sometimes they live in this bubble. The ones that are more aware, you know, we're able to settle those cases quickly, and that's the right thing to do because it's it's it's, you know, like I say, toxic to their brand. And then it gives them an opportunity to really be a role model for everyone else that's looking up to them to saying, like, "Hey, if you have a dispute." This is the way to solve it. You don't go six years in litigation. You you resolve it quickly, respectfully. You move forward. And that's the way it should be done. And for the most part, except for a couple of these stories we've talked about, most of them have resolved things out of court because they'd be insane to fight. But when you are fighting... In court, is very difficult because now you've got the litigation happening and you're deciding what are you going to put in court papers, but then you also have what is going to go in newspapers. And it's a very difficult dynamic to deal with that. Just a couple of
1: more general questions kind of to wrap up. Both of these cases... The depp Heard case and the, the ongoing Angelina and Brad divorce involve some unsavory facts, some unsavory allegations in some cases, you know, especially in the Depp-Herd, you know, it's rather salacious. But celebrity cases are not unique in having these kinds of facts. What, what advice would you give to attorneys for handling those kinds of facts? I mean, they're really intensified in the case of celebrities because, again, it's all over the television and everything else. What advice would you give for attorneys for handling unsavory facts?
2: Sure. And I think that, that because of social media, it's not just the celebs who are being exposed with these allegations so quickly. I mean, it's, it's, things will spread very, very quickly, you know, about executives or other well-known people in the community. So the decision has to be made quickly. How are we going to address this? So you, you've got an allegation that's come out there, whether it's a new lawsuit or just a claim that's made on social media. Decision point one is, okay, do you ignore it and hope that it dies down? Or are you gonna address it? And so that's the first point. Um, if you're gonna address it, how are you gonna address it? Are you gonna do it personally, you know, meaning the client, or are you gonna do it through a representative? What are you gonna say? Are you gonna come out with maybe some evidence? And this th- starts going against traditional advice mostly, you know, as a lawyer, especially if you go back, you know, let's say 20 years ago, you know, hey, lawsuit filed. What does the defendant do? No comment. It's in litigation. We'll address this in court. What, five years later? Damage is done in minutes. So we're now looking at, and I'm talking to clients about, it's like, hey, well, you could do that. Maybe the story dies down, or we're going to address it. If we address it, like maybe we're gonna come out with some text messages, photographs, videos, whatever we have, just saying, like, hey, not only is this a false story, you everyone here needs to take a look at this. And, you know, please slow down in your judgment and give us a chance here and and get ahead of that story. So that's that's another, again, decision point that has to be made. If something is done that's wrong, then it's like, okay take an ownership of it. And again, contrary to advice, I mean, (laughs) advice is like, deny, 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 or remain silent. But it's like, hey, okay, there's something happened. Do we get ahead of it and say, you know what, I messed up. Uh, This is what I did wrong. This is how it hurt, you know, uh, whoever I hurt. And these are the steps that I'm doing to address that, you know, the elements of a good apology. And again, these are conversations that I'm having with a client, and I think, you know, everyone should be thinking about is because otherwise you're just roasted. If you don't, if you go with the classic approach, again, which might work, but you're literally on the slow roaster here in the media, on social media, allegations being made, conclusions being reached, and with no response, and okay, great. Are you going to then wait two years in court and then present that evidence? And who's looking at that time? Who cares at that time? So these are conversations that need to be had and done immediately. I don't have great answers on them because they're all, you know, very unique facts, but that's that's what I'm advising. Well, let me wrap up then with one question.
1: When you as an attorney decide, or at least propose or discuss with your clients, going public in some way, either trotting out some evidence that uh, may have been unknown to the wider public prior to that point, or if it's going public with, uh, you know, a mea culpa, an apology of some kind. Obviously, that's fraught with some risks. Those things are going to get thrown back in the client's face in a deposition or, uh, you know, at trial later. Um, There's always the risk of defamation. You know, I can imagine uh, all kinds of risks. So what do you do when a client does decide to go public in that way? What's your best advice for handling it properly and making it work, and helping the client not to shoot himself or herself in the foot?
2: Yeah, we're we're first going to look at you know how the client presents because some some people are very good at giving these presentations, others not so much. So if they're not so articulate or just just can't really get the point across convincingly, then we say, hey, maybe we have a spokesperson do that for that client. You raise a good point about defamation. What we're seeing so often here is that allegations get made and then they're denied, and the, the original accuser then sues for defamation, saying, well, hey, you know, you just defamed me by saying that I am a liar. And so we've seen plenty of examples of those lawsuits, uh, even against the lawyer who makes the allegation that it's a denial. So... We got to look through that. You know, uh, many states have a litigation privilege that would protect that, but that's only when cases are filed or at least they're being contemplated. So we'd want to look through what state laws are going to protect us. Again, you know, it's, it's a crisis that usually has to happen very quickly, you know, but I think gone are the days of being quiet. Uh, When you look at the news cycle 20 years ago, people were still getting a newspaper on their porch in the morning, and it took a long time to generate all of that news. Here, social media is dominant, and pretty much anyone can create a social media post, and if it's about something interesting enough, it could take off. So I just don't think we have the luxury of just waiting and saying, you know, let's, let's think about this for three weeks.
1: Just like in court, you've got to get in there, take control of that narrative. Well, Chris, this has been a fascinating discussion, really fun for me. If listeners
2: want to find you or contact you, how can they do so? Sure. So if you just look on the Internet, Christopher Melcher, M-E-L-C-H-E-R, you'll see all my information there. Always happy to talk to other lawyers if there's issues concerning, you know, California family law, which is the only thing I really know. You know, let me know. I'm always happy to help answer those questions. And if anyone wants to connect up with me on social media, I'm really just looking at Twitter right now. So I'm at uh, CA underscore divorce on Twitter. That's my handle. And if you can uh, follow me there or chat me up there, I'd, uh, I'd love to meet you.
1: Okay, great. Well, Chris Melcher, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your insights on the litigation war room. Thanks, Max. Hey, guys, I want to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, Fort's Legal Support, As busy litigators, there are never enough hours in the day. Why use a bunch of different legal support providers when there's one you can trust for all your needs? Need a process server in Chicago or a trial presentation specialist in L.A.? How about a court reporter in Dallas or a computer forensic expert in Atlanta? Ford's Legal has you covered. I use Ford's Legal in my litigation practice. They are responsive, economical, and ready to help every step of the way. By leveraging cutting-edge technology and best-of-class resources, Fortz Legal is a trusted partner of solo attorneys and Amlaw 100 law firms alike. Contact Fortz Legal today to learn how their team can assist your law practice. Visit them at fortzlegal.com. That's F-O-R-T-Z-L-E-G-A-L.com, Or call 844-730-4066.
0: You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country, bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. Com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room. And please, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the litigation war room.